This past year at the Feast of Tabernacle sites that I attended, two of them, St. Augustine and Hilton Head, I made a clarification on a subject of which there's some confusion. It wasn't the main subject of the uh, messages, but I wanted to squeeze that little statement in, a statement or two, to make a clarification. Because there is some confusion about this subject, and it needs to be cleared up. And it's not as though it's something new. It's something that has been understood by the Church of God for decades. In fact, back in 1976 or 1977, I don't remember the exact year. I could be off even there a year. Don't remember the year, but I remember the first sermon that I ever gave during the Feast of Tabernacles. I had given, I think, the year before an opening or a closing prayer, and I learned that standing in front of eight to 10,000 people were, was really different from a couple hundred people. Uh, you, you wouldn't necessarily think so, but it, it really was different. It was very intimidating. But I remember the subject only had one point, uh, something that our graduate club members go through a one-point speech, and it was to show the difference between the kingdom of God and the millennium because they are not the same. So today I'm going to show that understanding this truth is not something that is new to the church, and I'll show that this truth has many ramifications, especially if we don't understand it, and show that this is the the case by using the one source that is absolutely firm on the subject, that is the Bible. As we often say, don't believe us because we say it, but believe it because you read it in the Scriptures. And then finally, I'd like to explain why this understanding has vital relevance for the church itself. This understanding that the kingdom of God is not the same as the millennium, as I said, is not new. It's been understood for decades. As I mentioned, I I gave this message way back in the middle 70s, before eight or 10,000 people. But it's also been written a number of times, for example, in the booklet, Do You Believe the True Gospel? Now, I'm only going to read a very short passage here on page 26, but when you read the whole booklet, it's very clear that there's a difference. But I do want to read one very short paragraph. It says, the kingdom of God will rule the earth's peoples. Notice it will rule the earth's peoples. There's a difference. But these subject mortals will not be in the kingdom, only ruled by it. What then will be in the, who then will be in the kingdom? Can you become part of it? Dr. Meredith didn't come up with that as some new revelation. Mr. Herbert Armstrong, in his book, The Incredible Human Potential, on page 196, wrote the following. He pointed out how the world has misunderstood what the gospel message is. And so, breaking into a thought, he says, because they rejected Christ's gospel 1,900 years ago, the world has to supplant something else in its place. They had to invent a counterfeit, a counterfeit gospel. 
So we have heard the kingdom of God spoken of as merely a pretty platitude, a nice sentiment in human hearts, reducing it to an ethereal, unreal nothing. Others have misrepresented that the church is the kingdom. And note this, others confuse it with the millennium. I'll read that again. He said, others confuse it with the millennium. Still others have, earlier in our century, that last century, claimed the British Empire is the kingdom of God. How deceived can this world get? So there are many different gospels out there, many different ideas of what the, the gospel is all about, what the kingdom of God is all about. But the Bible is very clear about the kingdom and what it is. And so we want to know exactly what it is. The title of this sermon, for those taking titles, is The Kingdom of God and the Millennium Are Not the Same. Now let's look from the scriptures why they are not the same. Let's show proof from the Bible that they are different. First of all, the confusion is sometimes a result of the association of it with the millennium. We talk about the kingdom of God very much in the context of the millennium. And so often we refer to the millennium, or some people refer to the millennium as the kingdom of God, but that's a little bit misleading. And sometimes even when it's said properly that it is a, uh, a government, the government that's ruling during the millennium, uh, people simply miss the whole point of it all. And so it is spoken of at the Feast of Tabernacles quite often, and it's very easy to confuse it. Another reason for this confusion may be that it comes from our explanation of what a kingdom is, that it has four elements, all of which are present during the millennium. The four elements that we've taught for decades is a kingdom has to have a king, has to have a ruler. And we know that that ruler is Jesus Christ. We can read about that in Zechariah 14.9, where it says, The Lord shall be king over all the earth. And that's our second point, the territory. What is the territory that a king rules over? It's this earth. And we can read of that in Revelation, the fifth chapter, verse 10, where those born into the family of God are going to be ruling on this earth. The third element is that it has to have subjects. And we know that those subjects during the millennium are going to be the human beings, the flesh and blood human beings, who live on into that time. Many of them, especially at the beginning, are totally carnal. And they're going to have to come up and keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And so we know that they're not totally submissive at the beginning, and there are other scriptures, some of which I'll mention here a little bit, showing that they are not necessarily converted. In fact, not even necessarily. They're simply not converted at the beginning of the millennium. And the fourth element is that it must have laws, must have standards by which people live. And we know those are the commandments and the statutes, as we read there in Isaiah 2, verse 3, and so many other places in Scripture, Ezekiel 11, Ezekiel 37, and our 36, and elsewhere. So how is it exactly, 
according to the scriptures, that the kingdom is different from the millennium. Well, the millennium is simply a period of time. We know that millennium refers to a thousand. And in Second Peter, the third chapter, in verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, that's following verse 8. It says where it says, But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. If you look at that context, not only the, the, the ninth verse, but the verses that go before, he's talking about the end of the age, talking about the day of the Lord, talking about when Christ comes back. And so, as quoted from Edward Gibbons, I'm not going to quote it, we've quoted it many times, the early church believed in the thousand-year reign of Christ on this earth. But we also have Revelation, the 20th chapter, Revelation 20, and verse 4, where it makes it very clear that the time that we will be ruling with Christ is for a thousand years. In Revelation 20, verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned or ruled with Christ for a thousand years. So this thousand-year period is very clear that it is a time yet in the future. We understand the the 7,000-year plan, uh, which the early church understood, that there are 6,000 years for man to go his own way, ruled by the prince of the power of the air, who works in the sons of disobedience. But the 7,000 year is the millennial rest, and we understand also the connection between the weekly Sabbath, that we have six days for man, six days to do our work, and then the seventh day, which we're in right now, which is the, uh, the day that is, is God's day. It is his day, and we are to keep it holy. But the kingdom of God, the actual kingdom of God, is not a period of time only. Yes, the kingdom of God will be ruling on this earth for a thousand years, but it will go on beyond that as well. But the kingdom of God is composed only of spirit-born children of God. Let's notice over in John, the third chapter, John 3, a very famous passage, something that the whole world talks about. I say the whole world, the Christian world especially especially evangelicals. We read here, in verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. That was quite a testimony. Not only did Nicodemus, but all the, the Pharisees knew they could see the works that Jesus did, and they could recognize that no one could do those kind of miracles except by the help or the, the uh, action of God. And then verse 3, 
Jesus interrupts him in a sense. He answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So whatever the kingdom of God is, one cannot see it unless he has been born again. Now, we all know that the world confuses this, and the world thinks of born again as an experience. I've, uh, over the years in the field ministry, had many interesting explanations of how people were born again. I think the most unusual one was a a lady that uh, up in Michigan, she was telling us that she was born again uh, sitting on the pot. I guess that's the only way I can put it. And she suddenly had this emotional experience come over her. And the next day she's talking about going out and robbing something with some other ladies. Not hardly born again. But you have these experiences that people have. And I have no doubt that they have experiences. I don't know what the cause of them is, whether just their human emotions, or whether they be uh, a spirit that uh, causes something to happen. I don't know. But I think those experiences are very real, whether they are, they're not being born again, but they interpret them as being born again. And yet Jesus said here, verse 4, because uh, Nicodemus asked this question, he said, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And I know that the former association that we had that was going in the wrong direction said that, well, Nicodemus really knew what born again meant, but he was trying to justify himself by acting ignorant as though he didn't know. But when you look at Nicodemus, he is spoken of at least two other times in the book of John, once defending Jesus, asking his fellow Pharisees and others that, do we condemn a man before he's had a hearing? And this was not an easy thing to do. He was going against the grain, against his peers. And later on, we don't always think about it, but Joseph of Arimathea not only took the body of Christ and buried him by himself, but Nicodemus was there to help out. And that was probably a dangerous thing to do. Just look at our politically correct age today. If you do something that is not politically correct, you can be banned in various ways. And certainly the Pharisees could have banned him. We know that the man who was healed of blindness, his parents did not want him to be thrown out of the synagogue because that was a threat from the Jews, that anybody supported Christ could be thrown out of the synagogue. How much more a Pharisee who was known and to take the opportunity to help bury Christ, and they had a 100 pounds of spices plus the body. This was not an easy task, but he was involved in it. It does not sound to me like a man who would just be playing games with Christ. He didn't understand what was being said here. He understood what birth was. And so Jesus said in verse 5, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter 
the kingdom of God. So one place it says, see the kingdom of God, and here it says he cannot enter the kingdom of God unless born of water and spirit. John O'Gwen had a very interesting article on that. You can look up uh, uh, what does it mean by being born of water and spirit on the Internet. Uh, I've also written an article that will be coming out in the January-February issue of Living Church News that uh, talks about this subject. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Now, all of us have been born in the flesh, and we are flesh. At least I think all of us are. Uh, I don't see anybody out there that I know that's uh, so perfect that you must be something other than born in the flesh. As we often say, well, we can use a hat pin test and take it and, you know, check out, see if you, uh, if you scream or, or say, ouch. We're born in the flesh. And then Jesus said, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now, I know how they get around this by saying that, well, it's just a, you know, it, it, it's spirit in you. Uh, but it says that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. That's what it's really saying there. And we don't have this passage alone. But he says the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell uh, where it comes from and where it goes, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, I think that we can see you coming in, we can see you going out, but if you're born of the Spirit, you don't see it. And, of course, he said that unless you're born again, you'll not see the kingdom of God, nor will you enter the kingdom of God. And the conversation goes on, but let's notice another passage that really goes with this, and that's 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 50. Another very famous passage says, This I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Now, this is really all that we need to know that the kingdom of God is not the people that are on the earth during that thousand-year period because it says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Behold, I tell you a mystery, verse 51, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. So this tells us when we can be born into the kingdom of God is at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will rise, will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed, changed from flesh and blood to spirit. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So we're talking about the kingdom of God. It's talking about the last trumpet when we will have that change take place, when we can be, as it were, born into the very family of God. The whole subject of born again is addressed a little bit in the uh, John 3.16 booklet. You might want to reference that. And we have other materials as well on being born again. But very clearly, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. 
Now, the kingdom of God is a very real kingdom. And it will be set up here on this earth. But it will not be earthly in the sense of made up of human beings. The territory is this earth. But just as God has created the earth and he has put a spirit being on here to rule during this time, there's going to be a different ruler coming later on. In the 17th chapter of Luke, there are those who take this passage totally out of context, try to make a doctrine out of it to say that the kingdom of God is in our hearts, that it's kind of an ethereal thing. And so we'll look at Luke 17, verse 20. Luke 17, 20. Now, when he was asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come. So again, the subject is kingdom of God. He answered them and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. Now, if we just read that as it says it there, as it's translated, and we don't have any other scriptures to go on, I guess we could say that the kingdom of God is in us. But is that what Jesus was saying? Well, even the margin, at least in my Bible, uh, says among you, not within you, but among you. The audience that Jesus was speaking to were the carnal Pharisees. Notice again verse 20, where it says, Now when he was asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come. And we can read all the scriptures in the four Gospels about how the Pharisees were always contrary to Christ. They were carnal. Some of them risked being missing out on the kingdom of God entirely because of rejecting what they could see. So the Pharisees, would we say that the kingdom of God was in the Pharisees? I don't think so. Logic would say that that's not the case. But the marginal reference says, among you. Now let's go back to Daniel, the seventh chapter. might hold your place here, but Daniel, the seventh chapter. And we'll come right back, but for right now, let's notice verse 17. And we'll come back to this passage a little bit later, or at least part of Daniel 7. But it speaks of four beasts. And it says in verse 17, Daniel 7, 17, These great beasts, which are four, are four kings which shall arise out of the earth. The four beasts that he describes there at the beginning of the chapter are four kings which arise out of the earth. And we know connecting that with uh, the second chapter, the, the very first one was Nebuchadnezzar. Now down in verse 23, it says, Thus he said, The fourth beast, the fourth of these four beasts, shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth. So here we find that these beasts are referred to as kings, and they're also referred to as kingdoms. In fact, 
in my marginal reference about the four kings, it says representing their kingdoms. So king and kingdom are often used interchangeably uh, in scriptures. And so when we go back to Luke, the 17th chapter, and we read the other translation, which could be translated elsewhere or otherwise, which is translated a number of, of different translations differently, instead of saying the kingdom of God is within you, it should read is among you or, as some have it, in your midst. The king of the kingdom was in their midst. Jesus the Christ is the king of the kingdom. And he says, nor will they say, see here, see there. And when you read the whole context here, it's, it's an interesting context. It's talking about the, the end of the age because it, it goes on to show that as it was in the days of Noah and Lot, you know, so that will be the day of the Son of Man when he's revealed. So it has an end-time context to it. Christ prophesied, or was prophesied, to be king of that kingdom. Let's notice Isaiah, the ninth chapter, Isaiah 9, beginning in verse 6, a very famous passage For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. A prophecy of Christ. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Very famous aria in uh, the Messiah. One of the pieces there that repeat these words over and over and What a beautiful sound that is. Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over His kingdom to order it and establish it with justice or judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Eternal of Hosts will perform this. Now notice that the subject is government. And it's talking about the throne of David, that the one it's talking about here, the Messiah, would sit on the throne of David. Let's go over to Luke, the first chapter, Luke 1. And this is when Gabriel came to to Mary. And verse 26 we we'll just read the passage here. It says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent to God, by God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. So whoever this child would be that was going to be born would be of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the, come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying. I dare say she would be. I think anybody would be under the circumstances. Verse 30. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. What a wonderful thing to hear. You found favor with God. 
And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. Verse 32, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. That was not talking about a literal chair. Talking about what that chair symbolizes, throne, rulership of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Very clearly what Isaiah was talking about is being fulfilled in Christ. He's going to be a ruler, ruling over the house of Jacob, but other scriptures show that it would be much beyond that as we read there in Zechariah the 14th chapter, verse 9. In John the 18th chapter, Jesus was standing before Pilate. John 18. And verse 37, Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Because he'd been accused of that, of claiming that. So Pilate asked him directly, Are you a king then? And Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born. And for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. But notice the previous verse, verse 36, Jesus answered, said, My kingdom is not of this world. He said he was to be a king, but his kingdom was not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. It wasn't there. It wasn't amongst the people. It was for a time yet in the future. It wasn't in the midst of the hearts of the carnal Pharisees. It was for a time yet in the future. Let's turn now to a prominent incident that we read of there that, in one sense, it's unusual. It's not unusual in one sense because we've heard it so many times, but when you think about it, back in Matthew, the fourth chapter, we read of the temptation of Jesus. And this is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mark's reference to it is very short, just two verses. It doesn't go into the details of it, but it shows that Jesus was tempted of the devil. He's driven out in the wilderness and tempted of the devil. But in Matthew, the fourth chapter, we read here that the tempter, verse 3, came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Well, having fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he obviously, as it says in verse 2, was very hungry. He was hungry, hungered after that. And he said, uh, Jesus then replied to the devil in verse 4, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So this was an appeal to his physical appetites. Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it's written. He shall give you, give his angels charge over you. 
Look how important you are. They'll hold you up because that's what the scriptures say. And then Jesus replied after Satan misused scripture. In verse 7, it's written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And then in verse 8, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. So by vision or something, showed all the kings of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Now, Jesus never denied that the devil had the authority to give those things to him. He was placed on a throne on this earth, as we read in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel, the 28th chapter. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall not worship, or you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. And at that the devil left him. And behold, angels came and ministered to Jesus. It's an unusual account here. Why? This account. Why? Well, let's just notice over in Mark, the second chapter, our first chapter, where it mentions this. It doesn't say much, but it adds something here. Mark 1, verse 12. It says, Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. God's Spirit drove him or led him, caused him to go out into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. That's all that Mark says about it. But God drove him out into the wilderness there, and Satan then tempted him and tried him. When you look at the tests that that Jesus was given, it appealed the physical sentence to the senses, senses and the pride. There was another contest, very similar in one sense, that we read of much earlier in Scripture. That's back in Genesis, the third chapter, Genesis 3, going back to the beginning. Here was another contest between Satan and a man. But Satan, in the form of a serpent, got through the, to the man through his wife. And we're familiar with this passage, but the serpent convinced the woman that she ought to take of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in verse 6, it says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And then she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, as it says. Not open to right truth, but to a different way of viewing things. And they then thought that their bodies were somehow evil, that God had created them in an evil way. It was Satan, the devil, that brought shame into the world. 
not God, but Satan. Back in 1 John 2, we see that whether it was the, the man and woman, Adam and Eve, but because Adam was uh, the one who was responsible, ultimately, and we read that he was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was. But back in 1 John 2 and verse 15, we're given this admonition. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, it was desirable to make one wise or turn those stones into bread. The lust of the eyes, all the kingdoms of the world. The lust of the eyes, it was pleasant to the sight, the fruit was. And the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. The pride of life, you can jump off, it's okay. And, and think how wonderful you're going to feel when you rule over all those kingdoms that I'll give to you. The tactic that Satan used was very similar in the case of Christ and the case of Adam. There were some differences, but basically it comes down to the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Any challenge, he tried to destroy both. He caused Adam to sin by going through his wife, but nevertheless, he apparently was there, heard those things. But the outcome was very different. In the case of Christ, he did not fall for the tricks of the devil. Adam failed the test, but Jesus overcame the devil. Thus, the Bible speaks of two Adams in this manner. Let's notice Romans, the fifth chapter, speaks of two Adams. I don't know that we always... Consider the importance of that. Something we read, but do we really comprehend what he's talking about there? In Romans, the fifth chapter, Romans 5 and verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as through one man, that's referring to Adam, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. And then verse 14, it says, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Notice verse 17. For if by one man's offense death reigned through one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Verse 18, Therefore, as though one man's, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteousness or one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. He's talking about the first Adam and is talking about a second Adam. And the difference, one fell into sin, the other was righteous. Christ stood up 
to Satan. He did not give in to the temptations that he was giving there. And we would know that certainly turning rocks into bread, which apparently he could have done, he fed 5,000 and 7,000, but he didn't do it because of the one who was telling him to do it, tempting him to do something that he shouldn't do. And 1 Corinthians 15, going back there again, 1 Corinthians 15, we'll read beginning in verse 45. 1 Corinthians 15:45. It says, And so it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Verse 46, 1 Corinthians 15, 46. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first, first man was of the earth, made of dust, made of flesh and blood. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. As Adam was, so are we. We're made of dust. We're flesh and blood. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. Of course, we haven't gotten there yet. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall, shall, future tense, also bear the image of the heavenly man. And then he says, now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That's the context of that. And the context of all of this is the resurrection. How are, the, uh, how are we resurrected? Because there are some saying that there is no resurrection. And he shows that the physical has to be different, has to change to something that is incorruptible. Back in Matthew, the fourth chapter again, Matthew 4, and verse 10. Matthew 4 and verse 10. says, Then Jesus said to him, This is at the end of the temptation. After he refused to give in to Satan, and he quoted various scriptures, and in fact he'll quote one here, He commands Satan, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. And then over in Luke, the fourth chapter, Luke 4, where this same incident is recorded there, Luke, the fourth chapter, in verse 12, Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And when the devil had ended every temptation, now, of course, Matthew says he told him to get out of here. He commanded him to leave. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So he didn't give up on deceiving Jesus, 
But he slunk away. He was defeated. In this context, it was a contest. Unlike the first Adam, Christ defeated Satan. And in a sense, he qualified to replace him. Now, why do I say in a sense? He did qualify to replace him in this titanic battle that was there. But did he have to do it that way? Consider 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, not 1 Corinthians, but consider Colossians 1, verses 15 to 18. Christ created all of the angelic host. Christ was the one through whom God used to create Lucifer, who became the devil and Satan. So since God is over everything, did he have to, quote, qualify to replace him? Oh, we've used that term in the past. The world would hate to hear anything about qualifications, so I'm not saying that we have been wrong in what we've said, but it may take a little bit of explanation. Since Christ could have done anything, or God could have done it a different way, why did he do it the way that he did it? Well, for the same reason that Jesus was baptized, as an example to all of us. God chose to do it this way. He chose to send his son down as a human being to be the second Adam, to do what the first Adam didn't do, and that was to defeat the devil, to resist, to overcome him, to show greater power than the devil. And that he did. He said as an example that we must resist this spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. We are to follow that example because we are going to replace Satan's cohorts, the demons. That's why they hate the truth so much, because they're going to lose power, whether it be the devil or all of his followers. They're going to lose authority. Right now, their kingdom is ruling on this earth. God intervenes at different times, but Satan has a throne. He wanted to exalt his throne above God. What is it, Isaiah, the 14th chapter? Let's notice that over there. Verse 12 says, How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How you were cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations? For you've said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. Note, this is verse 13. Isaiah 14, verse 13, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I remember when Mr. Armstrong said something about Satan having a throne, and I, and I had kind of missed that. I, and, and when I read that, I realized, you know, he knows what he's talking about. Satan had a throne, has a throne on this earth. And so Jesus has qualified by defeating Satan during the time of temptation, similar to what Adam was given a choice or a chance to do and failed, the second Adam didn't fail. And so that's a very important passage that when we think about it. 
So Christ then qualified, but he is not yet given the kingdom. Notice Luke, the 19th chapter. Luke 19. He's qualified to replace Satan. But in Luke 19, we read that he has not yet received that kingdom. This is when they asked him about the kingdom of God in verse 11. Now, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. And so he gave this parable. Verse 12, therefore he said, A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So when Jesus was resurrected to the throne of God, he was resurrected there to receive a kingdom. And then to return. He has not returned yet. When does he receive that kingdom? Well, it would seem like that is a time yet in the future. Let's go back to Daniel. Daniel, the seventh chapter, Daniel 7. Now, in this passage, we read that Daniel had these visions. He saw a vision by night in verse 2. The four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, verse 3, each different from the other. The first was like a lion, and we've read this many times, so I'm not going to go through all the details. But he saw these four beasts rising up from the sea. And then in verse 7, After this I saw night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible. And then in verse 8, I was considering the horns that were on this beast, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns of the, of the you know, ten horns were plucked up out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. We know this is talking about the spirit uh, beast, as it were, the, the great false church. We know that from other passages comparing them. But verse 9, it says, I watched till thrones were put in place. Thrones. Thrones were put in place. All of this that we're talking about here is about government. Has there been anything that we've talked about that really doesn't apply to government one way or the other? Who is greater? Who's ru- going to rule over who? Satan ruled over man, but not the second Adam. And the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white like snow. And the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousand ministered to him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Talking about the very throne of God where there are ten thousand times ten thousand spirit beings, angels that are at his throne. In verse 11, he gets back to the pompous words of this, uh, this other individual, this horn. 
referring to a, a government or a power, which Orin was speaking. And I watched till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. So that beast would finally be slain. And for the rest of the beast, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Then in verse 13, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man. Jesus described himself as the Son of Man time and time again in the New Testament. One like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Obviously, this would be after he was resurrected, no doubt yet in the future, because the whole context here is leading up to the very end of the age. To him was given a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, not just the Israelites, not the house of Jacob alone, but all peoples, nations, languages should serve him as dominion. His rule is an everlasting rule or dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Then it talks a little bit more about the the kings, especially the fourth one. And then down in verse 27, it says, Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Again, very much talking about government. So what we read here is the coronation of Jesus, of him being given the kingdom that we read about in Luke, the 19th chapter, where the nobleman goes into a far country to receive a kingdom. We can read Revelation, the 11th chapter, in verse 15, where it says that the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven. I'll just read it here. Saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So once he's been given, once he's been coordinated and given that kingdom, no doubt he'll be coming back right away. So let's notice that the kingdom of God on earth is truly about government, if we haven't figured that out already, which I think we have, but let's notice Daniel, the second chapter. Let's go back to Daniel 2, where we have the beginning of these four kingdoms described. This is where Nebuchadnezzar had this dream, and Daniel was able to interpret it because God gave him the interpretation. He didn't take credit to himself said that no man could do so, but there is a God in heaven that can. And then in verse 19, it says, Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven, and Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. So even though Satan rules the earth, God can step in any time he wants to. And he is going to change events to work it out as he plans. He removes kings and he raises up kings. 
So he is the great ruler over all. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. So he says in verse 23, I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given the wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we ask of you, for you have made known to us the king's demand. Let's notice verses 27 and 28. Daniel answered in the presence of the king, Nebuchadnezzar that is, and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. These things would continue all the way down to the latter days. It began with Nebuchadnezzar and would continue all the way to the end. He says, your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. And then he describes them. And then in verse 36, he says, This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it to the king. You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. It is God who has the power to make one a king or not. Because God rules over all. And that's a lesson here that Nebuchadnezzar didn't understand. He says, wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of heaven, he has given them into your hand. And he has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. And then he talks about the next kingdom that would follow, and the third one, and the fourth one. Verse 41. But you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, The kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of iron shall be in it, just as the iron mixed with ceramic clay, as you saw that. Verse 42, And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men. We're seeing that in Europe. They don't cling to one another. They'll mingle with the seed of men. They're iron and clay. He says, just as it does not mix with clay. Verse 44, in the days of these kings of the ten toes, the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall be left shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Now what we just read there was about government. When we look at the reward of the saints, we know that David is going to be king over all of Israel. We can read that in Jeremiah, the 30th chapter, and verse 8. We could read in Luke, the 22nd chapter, verses 29 and 30, that the apostles are each going to rule over one of the 12 tribes of Israel. In Luke, the 19th chapter, we won't go back there again, but 
we read about the parable of the miners, and we know that God is going to give rulership to those who multiply what God has given to them, that the one takes one miner and multiplies to ten, is going to be ruler over ten cities. It's not talking about physical wealth. It's talking about spiritual wealth, spiritual growth that takes place. And the one with five, is, or one is given five, and he's also going to rule over five cities. Now let's read in Revelation, the second chapter, Revelation 2. In other words, the saints are going to rule. We've already read that in Revelation, the 20th chapter, but let's look at Revelation, the second chapter, because this applies to you and me if we're going to be in that kingdom. In verse 26, it says, And he who overcomes, he overcomes. What is it that we overcome? Well, certainly everything that Satan is putting forth, we must overcome Satan and his darts, fiery darts that he throws into us. Those thoughts that come to our mind, which are thoughts of anger and resentment. I don't mean anger at sin, but the, the things that come into our minds, whether it be lust or greed or pride, all those things that he's going to throw at us just as he did with the second Adam, just as he did with the first Adam, he's going to be throwing at us. And we must overcome. He who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, so we must persevere all the way to the end, to him I will give power over the nations. Notice he will rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. Now that's interesting because it shows that human beings born into the very family of God at the resurrection, part of the kingdom of God, are going to use an iron rod at times, especially at the beginning. And I know that sometimes people get bothered by that. Well, I don't want to do those things. Where was it? Up in Minnesota? Was it? Minnesota? Wisconsin? Where was it? Where this some deranged individual murdered, no, Montana, wasn't it? Idaho, Idaho. I knew it was up north someplace, Idaho. Murdered four people. Now, they may not have been righteous individuals. I'm sure they're not. But apparently this was one of the most grisly murders that, that even the police and others had ever seen. Blood was coming out from underneath the door. It was a grisly scene. They still don't know who it was. Would you like a rod of iron? Would you like to deal with that individual? When you look at the rulers around this world that prey upon their people, that take advantage of them, forget about the Gentile nations. Let's look at our own nation, some of the rulers we have. They're going to have to be dealt with. Now, that does not take away from the fact that we're going to be putting our arms around, as it were, figuratively speaking, maybe literally. A lot of hurt people because most of the world is going to be hurting at that time. But there are a lot of people that are going to have to, that are going to need a rod of iron. And the Scripture says that Power will be given to us over the nations. And another passage that sometimes people want to turn their 
head against and not realize what it is, but that's in Psalm 149. Psalm 149. Because this has to do with you and me as well. In verse 5, let the saints be joyful in glory. Psalm 149, verse 5, let them sing aloud on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouths and a two-edged sword in their hand. We know that speaking of uh, a two-edged sword usually is referring to the Bible, but uh, maybe it's more than that in this case. It says, to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples. You know, when Christ comes back, they're going to fight against him. He's going to pour out the seven last plagues. Do they repent? Not according to the scriptures. They're cursing God at that time. To bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron. To execute on them the written judgment. This honor have all his saints. We have the opportunity to straighten out the mess. And you know what the big problem is in straightening out the mess in many cases? Is that nobody has the power to do so. They really don't have the power to step in and solve the problem. God is going to give us the power. Now we have to show during this lifetime that we're going to use discretion and use wisdom and compassion and not just be beating up a lot of people. That's not what the the scriptures are teaching us. But we're going to have the power to solve the problems. When you hear about a rapist, would you like to do something about it? When you hear about a murderer, would you like to do something about it? When you hear about a man beating up his wife, wouldn't you like to do something about it? When you hear about someone killing their own children or children killing their parents or grandparents, would you like to do something about it? Would you like to wrap your arms around people who are just hurting, deceive people who don't understand? It will not be rebelling at that point in time. They'll just be broken. Would we like to do that? That's what God is giving us the opportunity to do. So why is government important? And what does it have to do with the church? I think it's an interesting point, perhaps a side point, but it's a very interesting and important point. You know, some view church governance as trivial or as fluid, that it was different at different times. But if we really read the scriptures, it's not trivial. And for those that think it is trivial or not that important, why do they then so strongly defend their position? Their position of democracy in some cases, which is so against the scriptures, or of a harsh dictatorship on the other extreme. Why do they strongly defend those positions if it's trivial or not important? How the church is governed is of utmost importance. We've just seen an election here in this country. We've witnessed democracy in action. Now, I don't know about you, but it was pretty disgusting. For the Senate here in North Carolina, you had two people. 
was Beasley and Bud? Or Beasley or Beasley and Bud? And when, what do we know about them? We know one likes guns. He's a defender of the Second Amendment. But all the rest of his ads were tearing down his opponent. And what is his opponent doing? Tearing down him and trying to show that, well, she isn't harsh, I mean, isn't soft on criminals. If there was ever a time to say nuts with politics, that would certainly have been one. I don't know how, how we could vote for either one of them. But that's the way it is from top to bottom. I remember a, a man in the church, came into the church. He was a politician up in Canada, sat in the provincial parliament. Thirty years later, we were going through the provincial parliament, and there were still people, guards and others, not elected ones so much, but some of the people there that still recognized him. And I asked him, what was the best thing that you ever accomplished in politics? And he said, getting out. And he didn't hesitate. As he pointed out, it doesn't matter how good the bill is on the other side. Your caucus would tell you that you have to be against it because they're the ones presenting it. Is it any different here in the United States or any place else in the world? How the church governs itself is of utmost importance. The democracy of, or the results of democracy are backbiting and self-exaltation. Why would any church pattern its way after this man-made carnal approach and think the results would be different? The kingdom of God and the millennium are not the same. The prince of the power of the air has ruled and directed the course of this world for the last 6,000 years. It's all about rulership. The millennium is a period of time, the seventh millennium, the one that pictures is pictured by the Sabbath day. The kingdom of God is the family of God. It will be composed of God the Father, of Jesus Christ, and the resurrected born sons and daughters of God. That's you and me. Hopefully that's you and me. But just as Jesus Christ qualified to replace Satan as ruler of this evil world, so must we resist the prince of the power of the air and qualify to replace his demon assistance. The kingdom of God, the family of God, will rule over all the earth during that seventh millennial millennium time coming just ahead. That is what we pictured during the Feast of Tabernacles, and that's what we continue to picture year after year in that feast. So let us strive to be part of that world-ruling family of God, the kingdom of God.